touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and our co-host Lauren is out today, but another co-host of mine on the show, Forward Thinking, Joe McCormick, has kindly agreed to step in. Um, he doesn't know what he's in for. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I was just sitting at my little, I was going to say cubicle, but it, it's a cubicle with only one side. Yes. It's a its so, a one-icle. Yeah, it's a one-icle. Uh, we all have the same one-icle. And, uh, and this, this strange bald person sneaks up to me and says, will you jump on a podcast? They don't, so, get, they don't get much stranger. Yeah, so literally. I jumped. I jumped on. We have not outlined this at all. This is an impromptu uh, podcast that Joe has kindly agreed to, to participate in. But we wanted to have a, a chance to chat about something that I talked about in a recent episode of Forward Thinking. So if you guys haven't checked out Forward Thinking, Please do. I think I think a lot of tech stuff fans would really enjoy that series. Joe is the head writer on Forward Thinking and uh, has done amazing work. I have not written this episode, however. This episode was, I thought, really cool. And it's about a solar-powered aircraft. Yeah, which, when you think about it, that on its face sounds pretty crazy, especially if you have taken time to really look into solar power and not just its advantages, but its limitations, right? Right. Well, this is... Obviously not the only solar powered aircraft that's ever been created, but right. it's, it's probably the, the coolest one and ever created yet. And it is amazing that you can take a huge heavy thing off the ground with the power of solar energy alone. That's just, I mean, this is what powers your calculator. Right. Not, not an airplane. Yeah. Like, for example, I have a, a, a battery pack in my, in my backpack. It's got a little solar panel that it faces outward. And in theory, you can use solar energy to recharge the battery pack, which then you can use to recharge something like uh, a smartphone, right? That's the basic premise of this backpack. Here's the thing. If I want to recharge that battery uh, using solar power, I have to have it in the sun for 12 consecutive hours. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be consecutive, but 12 hours to get a full charge. Whereas if I were to plug it into the wall, it's an hour and a half, maybe two hours total to charge it all the way up, maybe even less than that. So it just shows that that solar power, you know, getting a lot of energy from it is a challenge. Now, obviously, the solar panel that's in my backpack is not what you would consider bleeding edge. No, it's probably not the best that our current science has to offer. It's probably not even on the top, near the top line for consumer tech right now, because what's available on the consumer side is a big drop down from the cutting edge best of the best. So if you are getting a solar panel that has been designed to be as efficient as possible. We're talking top of the line. This is the stuff that NASA is going to use, right? You're going to top out somewhere around 40 to 41% efficiency. And what you're talking about there is how much of the energy from the sun you're converting. Right. So you're, you're not even starting necessarily with a very high number. It's just how much of that solar energy is arriving at the panels, which is obviously going to be less than, say, the uh, energy density of gasoline or something yeah, like that. Far less, far less. Yeah. So you're getting you're getting this uh, you're, you're losing 60 percent of the energy that hits the panel right off the bat. Uh, then that ends up being converted into electricity. And it's not that much per solar panel, like an individual solar panel doesn't put out that much electricity, even if it's really efficient. It's not putting out that much. That's why whenever you talk about uh, really using solar panels effectively, you're talking about lots and lots and lots of solar panels, right? 
They, they have individual solar cells in them, and there might be thousands of these solar cells in one solar panel farm. Yeah, and if you're designing an airplane that's powered by solar panels, one of the big questions I would wonder is, where are you going to put them? I mean, yeah. when I heard about this thing before I saw an image of it, what I pictured in my mind was like a football field sized flat surface with just a tiny little, you know, person strapped to the bottom of it. And that's not that far off uh, in a way. <laughs> uh, yeah, that probably wouldn't fly. But yeah, but you, you have to design it like a plane. Yeah, you got to have a lot, a lot of um of surface area. Right. Yeah. You have to have a lot of surface area for multiple reasons. So the big reasons why you need a lot of surface area, which in planes means a wide wingspan, because obviously if you made the fuselage or the, the body of the plane the biggest part, then you have to figure out how do you get something that bulky and heavy into the air and have it have the, the vehicle maintain enough thrust to keep it in the air. Because, I mean, thrust is a really important part of this, too. We, we just established that solar panels aren't generating that much electricity, so they can't uh, push a, a super powerful electric motor. And the electric motor is what's going to be turning the propellers that are going to provide the thrust necessary to get this plane in the air. So you have to keep weight in, in mind. You can't make it too heavy. And you still need all that surface area. So what do you do? Well, what the folks over at Solar Impulse. Oh, yeah, we should have said that's the one we're talking about. Yeah, the, today. the yeah, Solar Impulse. Solar 2. Impulse 2 is specifically the one we're talking about. There already has been a Solar Impulse 1, which was kind of a proof of concept vehicle that they built in order to test out the different engineering approaches they were going to take because their goal is to have this circuit, this, this Solar Impulse 2 go all the way around the Earth. I believe the demo of the Solar Impulse 1 was a, a transcontinental flight. Yeah. Uh, it, right. It was from the West Coast to the United States to the East Coast. Uh, and it, they, they had several legs of the journey. They even had uh, set a record uh, for the longest number, the most number of flight hours consecutively for a manned solar powered aircraft. So if you're talking about unmanned aircraft, you end up having uh, really long times because you don't have a human that you, you have to You don't need a cabin. Yeah, you don't need to worry about a person saying goodbye to their family for two weeks or whatever. Uh, so for the manned record, we're talking uh, 26 hours, 10 minutes, and 19 seconds. So more than a full day. And if you're thinking solar power and you're thinking, how the heck were they able to fly when there was no sun? We'll get to that. Uh but yeah, so so the record's already been set. Th these were all proof of concepts that uh, they were saying, well, we need to figure out what things are required for this dream of flying a solar-powered aircraft all the way around the world. What's required for that to actually become a reality? So this wingspan was the first thing. And uh, the Solar Impulse 2's wingspan is pretty impressive. We're talking about 72 meters. Uh, so that's, that's more than 240 feet. We're talking about the... Uh, the width that's greater than, say, a Boeing 747-81. Okay, but unlike a Boeing 747-81, it doesn't have a huge fuselage full of passengers and cargo. Right. This it has a tiny, tiny little... Compartment. Yeah. Yeah. It's essentially a little... The body of the plane is very small. It, it'll it allow the two, the pilot and co-pilot to sit side by side, just as in a, a traditional uh, aircraft. And it's not, you know, front and back like the old... Uh, World War One and World War Two aircraft were as a ball turret. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not gonna have to worry about that. Um, but yeah, it's it's relatively small and it's made out of carbon fiber. So carbon fiber has a couple of advantages, right? It's pretty strong and it's 
really light compared to other materials. So you want to use something that's going to be resilient so it can withstand the the uh, rigors of air travel. And right. yet it can't be too heavy. So carbon fiber is what they went with. And in fact, the entire uh, plane ends up being uh, something like, uh, I think it's 2,600, no, sorry, 2,300 kilograms. So that's around 5,070 pounds. That means that there are cars on the market that are heavier than this airplane is. This airplane that has a wingspan wider than a Boeing 747. That's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. You know, I would imagine one reason that they can use those kind of fibers is because this airplane goes a lot slower than <laughs> yeah. your standard passenger airplane, right. which obviously the faster you go, the more turbulence and friction you're going to have to withstand. Right. And uh, yeah, so so with a Boeing example, for example, like your average con- commuter airline type of thing, you're talking about speeds in the 500 mile per hour range. With uh, Solar Impulse 2, you're not going to go quite that fast. The top speed is something like 88 miles per hour. 88 miles per hour. Fortunately, it does not require 1.21 gigawatts for it to fly, or else it would go back. How many gigawatts does it require? Not many at all, really. Because, again, <laughs> you, all right, do you know how many solar uh, panels are actually on this No, thing? I don't know. 17,000. Across that 72. I guess I don't know what that means because I don't know how big they are. They're not, it's not that they're (laughs) that big. Well, I mean, think of a 72 meter wide wingspan. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're, that's pretty huge. It's not that those, the panels themselves or the solar cells, I guess I should say, it's not that the solar cells are that big because really 17,000 solar cells is more accurate than panels. Panels are like a collection of cells, but, uh, they're not that big, but the fact that there are 17,000 of them is pretty impressive and they're only driving four electric motors. And like I said, those electric motors turn electric propellers. The propellers are shaped in such a way to help provide the thrust needed so that you maintain the speed to uh, to stay in the air. Those wide wings also are able to provide a lot of lift and stability in flight. Although it is kind of tricky. You can't uh, take off in windy conditions with this thing. You would imagine not because with such a wide wingspan, a little bit of wind could easily get it to start tilting any which way. Yeah, yet another thing I'd also imagine is that the wider wingspan allows it to stay aloft at lower speeds. Yeah, yeah, that's another thing. And it's also not going to go to the same sort of altitude that you would see with like a, a, you know, a commuter jet or something. That's not going to go up to 35,000 feet. Um, so yeah, we've got this, we've got this incredible aircraft that's light. It's in, it's able to, uh, get through the air without falling apart. Despite the fact that it's so light, it's able to drive these electric motors. So how can it fly at night? Well, that's an excellent question that we'll answer in just a moment. But let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Okay, so we're doing a round-the-world flight. It's at 88 miles per hour. That means at top speed, 88 miles per hour. That's not average speed. That's top speed. That would mean there's going to be some stretches of this flight where the airplane's going to have to stay in the air a really long time because there's no convenient way to land it at night when you're over, say, the ocean, right? There are going to be times where the, you know, those oceans are so wide, there's no way the plane can make a trip across, say, the Atlantic in a single day, not at 88 miles per hour. It's going to take multiple days and nights of flying for it to get from one point to another where it can safely land because they do plan on taking this trip through several legs where the plane will be able to land, maintenance crews can come out and, and, and do some repairs if necessary. 
that kind of thing. It's not like it's going to do a, a full flight around the earth without ever touching down. They will be touching down along the way and then taking back off in another leg of the journey. But still, when you're over the ocean, you don't have that luxury. So you've got to be able to fly at night. So that's when they switch to monkey on a stationary bicycle power. You know, I recommended that. I thought th- it's time has come. I mean, it's an unproven technology, I'll grant you. But I really think we have not tapped the potential of monkey bicycles. <laughs> no, I think this is they've got to be using some some pretty good batteries. Yeah. And that has to be a very important part of the design, right? Because batteries are heavy. Exactly. And this airplane needs to be light. Yeah, they used uh, they created lithium batteries. They actually had the engineers had to look at a way to make the batteries uh, incredibly efficient, and uh, they, they had to be able to charge quickly because if you aren't getting a full charge throughout the day, then while you're also driving those propellers, then that could become a problem at night, right? If you want to remain aloft, that could be a serious problem. Yeah. So they experiment with different electrolytes, um, which, of course, as we know from idiocracy, is the stuff that plants crave. But uh, <laughs> no, they... they Experiment with a lot of different um, chemical compositions to try and make the most efficient batteries. So they went with lithium batteries that are kind of, uh, think of it like a, a long, thin, almost like a film, as opposed to a big battery pack. Okay. So it it uh, it's pretty remarkable, the design. And they weigh, the batteries weigh 633 kilograms, or about 2,077 pounds, which means that, you know, the they weigh... a little bit more than a quarter of the actual plane itself, the batteries alone. Wow. So obviously batteries are heavy. They're important because you have to have that energy to tap into at night. Otherwise, once the sun starts to go down or it gets too cloudy, your plane would plummet. And this isn't just a problem for planes. I mean, it's especially a problem in planes. But right. This is a problem for any electric vehicle, right? Is, yeah. Is how to deal with this massive battery that's required to operate motors with this kind of power. Exactly. And it's something that we've seen not even not just in, in electric vehicles, but electronics in general. It's one of those constant questions that pop up about how, you know, the processing power has increased steadily over the years. We've got the whole observation of Moore's Law where we're seeing it practically double every two years or so, depending upon your interpretation of the observation. Uh, well, then, why haven't batteries kept pace with that? You know, we're, I'm seeing my, my mobile device is getting more powerful, but the battery's draining faster, so it's not as useful to me as long. And part of that is just because batteries aren't on that accelerated path. I mean, there's only so much we can do with chemistry. Uh, to be fair, they have come a long way. This is also a topic we talked about not too long ago on Forward Thinking, is how far batteries have come. And sure. It is kind of amazing what we've achieved today. I mean, your standard lithium-ion battery today is kind of a wonder work. It really is, yeah. The fact that you're able to recharge it so that the chemical, the electrochemical reaction that's going on within the battery gives off electrons. I mean, that's the whole point of a battery. Otherwise, it would be useless. Uh, and in a in an alkaline battery, this is an irreversible uh, reaction. So the electrochemical reaction happens, electrons are given off as a result, you can use those electrons to do work, thus electricity, but once it's drained, once that chemical reaction has gone to a certain point, you're not generating enough electrons for it to be useful anymore, you have a dead battery. Yeah. Whereas with these lithium rechargeable batteries, there are non-rechargeable types too, but with rechargeable batteries, you can reverse that reaction by 
essentially forcing electrons back backward through that pathway. It's basically doing the whole thing backward. You're putting work into the battery the same way you took work out of it earlier. Yeah. So the fact that we've managed to do that and, and increase the efficiency uh, even a little bit is the reason why something like the Solar Impulse 2 is is possible. And again, we're not going to see this actually fly around the world until 2015, but they've already proven that it works with that first proof of concept vehicle that was able to stay up in the air for 26 hours. The fact that it was able to recharge the batteries, fly all the way through the night and continue, um, you know, they're fully certified to fly at night. It shows that there's been a lot of work done here. So we've got uh, the energy side covered, uh, the fact that it's going to be using solar power to drive the electric motors at day, switch to battery at night. It's going to be able to to fly really for as long as the pilot and co-pilot can stand. That was my question. Yeah. What's this going to be like for the pilot and co-pilot? Um, okay, have you ever, <laughs> Joe, have you ever traveled first class? Uh, oh, no. Oh, okay. no. So I've traveled first class, uh, not to brag, but uh, it's pretty sweet. And uh, once you travel first class... How was the champagne and, and cheese selection? It, we didn't have champagne. We had real pain. Thank you. <laughs> None of this champagne you guys talk about. Um, no, oh. but, but I mean, it's it, anyone who's traveled first or business class and then goes back to travel coach, you, you, their belly aching is unbearable, right? It's just this idea. Oh, no. Can't go back. Yeah, you can't go back. Uh, by the way, I haven't traveled first or business in years and, and, Frankly, I'm still amazed that planes work. So I'm happy either way. <laughs> but but there was a period shortly after that time where I was able to travel first or business where I was one of those unbearable people for that p- particular reason. I'm unbearable for many other reasons now. But for that particular reason where I, I was, oh, I can't believe this. What a wonderful well, frequency of complaining. I know. Flying coach, though, would seem like an amazing luxury compared to what the pilot and co-pilot are going to have to be able to endure to make this round-the-world flight a possibility. Because one of the things they're going to have to do, like I said, is stay in the air for some of the estimates are as long as five days and nights or perhaps even longer for just one leg of this journey. So for five days and nights, you are in a chair, in a plane, and you cannot go anywhere because there's no space. Every single ounce matters on that plane. Every single inch counts. So there's no space in the back for one person to go and and collapse while the other one flies the plane. Instead, their chairs are going to be designed in such a way where they can lay back into a caught form and you can, the plane's going to have an autopilot. So they can set their, their heading and course and both catch some Z's while they need to and then wake up and everything should be fine. Um, <laughs> Somehow I don't suspect that will happen. Well, that you know, sounds freaky. I think it's probably more likely that they're going to do their best to take shifts. But the nice yeah. thing is that they can sit on autopilot and catch some rest if they need to. Uh, but all right. So we've got we've got laying down to rest and we've got sitting up to operate. But there's still one important human activity besides the whole eating and drinking thing. They'll obviously have some food and water up there uh, on the plane as well. There's one other important activity that we can't avoid. Yeah, I was about to ask, have the engineers factored into the plane's course yeah. the fact that it might be losing a bit of mass as it travels? <laughs> so what we're alluding to is, where do you poop? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one of the most popular questions on How Stuff Works' main site is, you is know, where how, do you poop? In space. Oh, OK. All about space toilets. 
Um, in this case, those fancy chairs I was talking about, they double up as, uh, as both chairs and cots. Well, really they do triple duty because they're also lavatories. I had to do it, Joe. Joe is rolling his eyes. So everybody. I know we've already achieved some horrible pun hat trick. Everybody who misses Lauren's eye rolling, just know that her spirit is living in Joe right now, <laughs> even though Lauren herself is not yeah, in the I'm office. Possessed. Uh, yeah. So, um, but no, it's, it's true. The, the actual chairs are going to do, uh, this, this triple job of being the place where you sit, the place where you sleep, and the place where you have to go to the bathroom because they couldn't incorporate a separate lavatory because, again, every single bit of weight counts. It seems like there would be ventilation issues. Yeah, I haven't uh, haven't actually seen any illustrations or animations of how this actually works. Like, does does the does a little bit of the bottom of the chair just open up to the to the the ocean? (laughs) I mean, who knows? I honestly do not know the answer to that because I haven't seen the illustrations. I've seen I've seen footage of them testing out the chairs, laying it back into cot form, but not the pooping. Well, here's a question I yeah. don't know if you know the answer to. Sure. Is, is the cabin pressurized? Are they flying at such an altitude that they don't have to pressurize the cabin? Now, the the pictures I've seen, I've seen them wearing uh, uh, essentially uh, air masks as well. Okay. Uh, so I would imagine that the cabin is not pressurized, but I, I also imagine they're not typically flying at an altitude where that's too much of a problem. They they did, as I saw, have uh, have masks there. Because I saw a guy who essentially, he pulls the mask aside in order to eat a little snack cake, drink a little water, put the mask back on, go on his merry way. Um, but whether or not the whole thing is pressurized, I don't think it is. Because again, that would require a lot of weight to be able to put in the systems necessary. You have to seal everything off, obviously, because if, if you don't seal everything off, you can't maintain a pressure. You know, it would just be escaping the whole time. Plus, then you would have to have the mechanisms necessary to pressurize the cabin, and all of that adds weight. So, really, when it comes to solar aircraft in general, not just the solar impulse, but any solar Im- aircraft, anything that's not absolutely necessary to maintain flight tends to be left behind. So, you don't have a lot of the systems and a lot of the other niceties. In fact, a lot of solar aircraft don't even have landing gear. They have uh, they have wheels that allow them to roll around when they're before they take off. But and then they once they take off, they shed jet, them. They jettison the wheels because that's weight. Yeah, it makes so, sense. It's like the uh, the fuel containers on the space shuttle. Yeah. So it means that when you're landing, you're not so much landing as you are having as controlled a crash as you possibly can, which I'm sure is nerve wracking. But that's part of the design. So the plane is designed to have that kind of landing. It's not, you know, an emergency type thing. This is this is standard operating procedure on board solar aircraft. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of, I'm, I'm curious to see really how this continues to develop, uh, what the experience ends up really being like for the pilot and co-pilot, what it, you know, whether or not they're able to make this. By the way, I, I didn't mention this, their plan for the entire journey, you know, we're talking about that 88 miles per hour top speed. It's going to take them five months to go all the way around the world, and that's in various legs of the journey. So it's going to be lots of stopping and starting, but five months total. So it's uh you know it's 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 not something that's going to take place super fast, obviously. But I'm really curious to see if they're able to make it all the way around the world. And one of the things I love about this is that it's and it's really a pure engineering challenge, right? Yeah, the totally. Whole, 
the whole thing was this idea of let's build a heavier than air aircraft only powered by solar energy. Um, the batteries are charged by solar energy. So that's how you can say that it's only powered by solar energy and be able to fly it all the way around the world. All right. That's our goal. How do we achieve that? And honestly, when they first started thinking about this, they started talking about it back in 1999. When they first started thinking about it, it was not something that could have been achieved just based upon the technology they had at their disposal. The team had to innovate and, and invent things and tweak stuff in order for this to happen. And that's what I find so exciting because it's one of those projects where even if you think it's a ridiculous endeavor to fly around the world in a solar powered aircraft, the truth is the work that they're doing can inform other industries and other technologies that end up benefiting us in the long run. Yeah. Well, before I read about this particular story, I would have thought a solar powered aircraft was just impossible. Right. That there, there's no way you can generate enough power to create the thrust you need to stay aloft in mm-hmm. a heavier than air aircraft. I mean, right. obviously, if you have a balloon or something, but. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so it, it just blows my mind that they can do this at all. Not yeah. to mention the the extent to which they're taking this technology. We should talk about how the, this is almost certainly not going to be the passenger plane of the future. No, there's no way. Because uh, all of the, first of all, I think all the reasons that we gave of what they had to do in order to make this possible, I'm pretty sure that your average frequent flyer doesn't want to poop in their chair. Right. That would be a big one. Well, and you can't get enough people on it. Yeah. It doesn't go fast enough. You can't it, pressurize it. Yeah. Uh, or at least that's what I assume. I could be wrong about that. I didn't see anything about pressurization on uh, about the solar impulse. If I'm wrong about that, that's fascinating. I would want to read more about that, how they achieve that right. uh, uh, using this lightweight approach. But Well, even if you table that one, yeah, I mean, uh, just all the, the other alone. concerns make this, this is not going to re- replace the passenger jet. No, no. They What it could do is you could take a look at all the different considerations the team made in order to make the aircraft as efficient as it possibly can. And some of those lessons you might be able to apply to aircraft designs in the future. Yeah. And I would think one thing to focus on, or at least for us to remember, is that the advances that come with this kind of aircraft that are really important to future aircraft that people might fly in are not necessarily like the solar panels or the solar implementation. It might be the ways that aircraft like this use clever tricks to become lighter and still stay, uh, have enough stability in the, in the fuselage not to come apart. Right, right, right. Yeah. Because one of the things, you know, one of the big reasons why this is so important is that we didn't really address this, but air travel generates a lot of pollution. Right? Oh, your, yeah. Your standard, your standard jet, like your standard commercial jet, uh, can create as much as, uh, 0.4 to 0.65 pounds of greenhouse gas per mile traveled. It all depends on the destination. And paradoxically, perhaps, uh, the further you go, the less you're generating per mile. But the reason for that is because takeoff and landing are where you generate the most, uh, greenhouse gases because they require the most power. Yeah, there are people who talk about uh, buying carbon offset credits yeah. when you take an air travel journey. That's not a bad idea, even though th- through air travel, it's not necessarily just carbon emissions. It's other greenhouse gas yeah, emissions nitrous oxide that might be and even methane. more prevalent in jet fuel exhaust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's it's a huge amount. Like, you're talking, you know, 0.4 to 0.65 pounds of greenhouse gases. I mean, 
I don't know if you've weighed a gas recently, <laughs> but it takes a lot for it to make a pound. So you're talking about an, a, a truly massive amount of greenhouse gases every time a, an aircraft is flying. Uh, and again, depending on the type of aircraft and how far it's going, that's what tells you how much average you are generating. So if we're able to take lessons from things like the Solar Impulse 2 aircraft and incorporate them into future aircraft design so that our aircrafts are more efficient and using less fuel, then we are having uh, a smaller negative impact on the environment overall. Yeah, and while, as we said, there's probably not going to be a solely solar-powered aircraft, there may be hybrid aircraft in the future for sure. standard commuters. And, and, you know, you can see the possibility of using solar power for things other than uh, the thrust, right? You could use yeah. solar panels to do things like help power some of the uh, various systems aboard the the aircraft, depending upon what kind of aircraft it is. I mean, uh, you probably don't want all the avionics powered by solar power, but things like cabin lighting, that kind of stuff, could certainly be augmented through solar power, either uh, probably in a more uh, uh, analogous way to the way the solar impulse has batteries. You would probably use the solar power to charge batteries, and then the systems would draw electricity from the batteries, not have a direct line solar panel to system because that wouldn't be uh, as useful in, in you know, all the different situations that aircraft go in. Other thing about to keep in mind is that aircraft tend to fly higher than your, your regular cloud level commercial aircraft do. So they actually have better access to sunlight than oh, say yeah. something that can't go that high. Um, yeah. And also we're seeing this technology being incorporated into unmanned aerial vehicles. Uh, there's already, proposals for UAVs that could use solar panels and never have to land. They could just stay in the air perpet- uh, you know, until they needed some form of maintenance. So until something breaks, they're fine. <laughs> in which case, they'd probably just crash. Yeah. If, if there's enough of a warning where you know something's going to end up or you just have, you know, a set schedule for when things need to have regular maintenance, then you might be fine. But <laughs> if you get a note saying, oh, propeller failed, you're probably like, well, Lost that one. But it's interesting because it could be used for all sorts of stuff, not just, I mean, a lot of people sit there and think of surveillance, but that's not the only use. You can use it for things like sending it into a dangerous area that's been hit by a disaster or other sort of calamity and get a really good idea of what's going on before you send any kind of first responders in. Or in a, a example like the Fukushima nuclear reactor uh, disaster, you want to be able to send in you know, robots and that kind of stuff without having to put people in harm's way, because that's a that's potentially a really dangerous situation. And having something that can maintain its position for a, a longer amount of time is more useful than something that just gets a snapshot. And then that's all, you know, the battery life is only 20 minutes or 40 minutes and then you have to fly it back. Uh, it, that's not as useful. Having something that can maintain its presence and keep an eye on developing situations is incredibly useful. So I think we're going to see that kind of technology more widely deployed over time as well. So I'm really, really excited by this project. I mean, I love any kind of engineering challenge where it makes people think creatively about how to solve these problems. So maybe in the future we'll do an episode about some of the amazing DARPA challenges, too, like some of the ones that have 
incredibly difficult tasks that engineering teams have to figure out. How do they achieve these these goals? I, I like the problems that are specifically like this, where you're trying to squeeze every last drop of efficiency out of a mechanical system. Sure. Like uh, the same way I might not admire the way they drive in terms of safety reasons, but I like reading about the hypermilers, the right, people who right. try to get every possible efficiency advantage they can out of their car. Well, Joe, in an, in an offline conversation that we had earlier this week, we've already determined that Mrs. Todd's shortcut is an interesting <laughs> Short Stephen, story, King Stephen King short, King short yeah. story about, you know, finding that most efficient, most efficient route, even if it costs you your sanity. <laughs> um, yeah, but no, I agree. I mean, the, the, it's one of those things where you always think like there, there are those moments where you think, all right, we've hit it. We've hit the pinnacle. There is no squeezing a single ounce of efficiency more out of this. Now, somebody then, smart can probably figure something out. Yeah. Which is, that's always fantastic. I mean, cause it, again, we all stand to benefit. It might not be immediate. It might not be that the next day you wake up and suddenly the world is a magical place, but it could mean that another five or 10 years down the road, technology that we had not thought was possible is a mundane reality because of the things we learned from these engineering challenges. It's pretty cool. So yeah, I think, uh, First, I want to say thank you, Joe, for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I really, love visiting tech stuff. I very it's much an appreciate honor. it. Oh, well, you know, the honors are all ours. And now that we're done patting ourselves on the back. But, uh, yeah, no, it's great to be able to pop in here. Uh, Lauren will be back for our next episode, so no fear. And, uh, yeah, guys, if you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, maybe you want to hear specifically about those DARPA challenges. And you just think, I want to know more about the crazy crazy things we have taken on ourselves as saying, you know, this is something that's impossible. How do I change that and make it possible? Let us know, because there are a lot of great stories in technology that relate to that kind of thing. Also, don't worry, we are going to be recording the episode about how to surf the web like a super spy very soon. We've heard you guys, you all want to know. Had a brief conversation with the FBI, but now you got the go-ahead. Yeah, yeah, the men in black have uh, wandered off. Uh, they forgot to use their little red flashy thing, so we're totally cool. Um, yeah, we're going to do it, so stay tuned, because that episode is coming up soon. And any other suggestions you have, make sure you write us. Our address is techstuffatdiscovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 